one of the uh, best known books by one of the most well-known authors begins with a prayer. And the prayer, you may not be completely familiar with the prayer, but you are likely familiar with the way the prayer concludes. For the prayer concludes with this phrase, Because you made us for yourselves, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. This likely familiar phrase comes from a book written by Augustine of Hippo. It is an autobiography of sorts. It's called Confessions, where Augustine testifies how his restless heart found rest in Christ. Augustine, in many ways, I think, parallels the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, Augustine pursued the, quote, good life. He took many lovers. He sought fame and achieved fame. He pursued the philosophies of the day and excelled in them. In fact, he uh, exceeded them to the point where sometimes he would um, ask the leaders of that philosophical position questions that they couldn't answer. And he'd say, well, if you can't answer those questions, I need to go seek a different philosophy. So he would go and seek different philosophical schools to find the meaning of life. But he was not satisfied. He was not satisfied until he came to love God and to love his commands. And this is why he says, because you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Augustine found no peace in the philosophies, in the fame, in the hedonistic pursuits. But he did find rest in the living God. And this is much like the preacher. The preacher has been searching for the meaning of life. And he has taken us down uh, avenues that are uh, with bright lights. He's also taken us down dark alleyways of the soul. All of these have been explored. All of the answers to the meaning of life have been pursued. No hedonistic stone has been left unturned. And so behind all of the bright lights and at the end of every dark alley stood death. And behind death stood the Creator. We also have learned that God gives good gifts to those He created in His image. They are gifts to be enjoyed, not gods to be worshipped. Good gifts are not to be exalted and trials in life are not cause for resignation. He has talked about the good things that God has given us, but he has also been very honest and said, but we also experience hard times. Neither of them are ultimate. The good gifts are not to be worshipped, and the difficult times are not a cause to resign ourselves from this life. But rather, all these things come from God. And while we don't understand why God does what he does, all of these things are designed to direct our gaze to the God who has created us. And so that's where a very brief summary, if you will, extremely brief, of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want more detail, 
Go back, they're online, you can find notes, and you can listen to all of the sermons if you want detail on all of that. We have spent a couple of months detailing the preacher's pursuit for the meaning of life, and that's pretty much where we've been. Let me give you a quick preview of where we're going to go today. Today's message is really pretty simple. We are going to give consideration to God's Word and having given consideration to God's word, we're going to, um, it's going to be followed by the logical conclusion. That is, what do I do now? We're going to, so we're going to pursue God's word. We're going to look at the characteristics of God's word. And then we're going to ask and answer the question, what do I do now? The case has been made. Everything's been said. Now what? So that's where we're going to go today. We're going to look at the God's Word and some of the characteristics of God's Word. Um, and then we're going to answer the question, now what? So what? What do I do now? That's where we're going to go. So if you will, join me. This is our final week in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, I've been excited to teach through this book. Next week we will uh, consider the book of Colossians. I would encourage you to read the book of Colossians this week. But for now, let's read the book of Ecclesiastes. Not the whole thing, just chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Listen to the inerrant word of the living God. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, And uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails, firmly fixed. And the collected sayings, they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making of many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. I'm going to begin our text this morning, not with verse 9, but with verse 8. Verse 8, you ready? Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Aren't you glad that that's not the end of the book? Aren't you glad the preacher just didn't say, well, everything is vanity, all is vanity, I'm done. Thankfully, vanity does not have the last word. But the preacher continues, beside being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Being wise, the preacher teaches the people I just thought this was fascinating because as wise as he is, what does he do? He teaches the people knowledge. He shares what he has discovered. He does not hoard what he has been given. And just as hoarding of wealth is viewed negatively in the Scripture, so those who withhold others the gifts that God has given. So the preacher has been given the ability to teach and to impart knowledge to other people and he will not hoard that ability or that gift, but rather he will disseminate that gift so that other people can also have knowledge of God's 
great truths. Believers are to use the gifts that God has given them for the benefit of the church and to outreach of those yet to believe. In fact, I would say that perhaps this is a characteristic of the wise. Being wise, the preacher did these things. A characteristic of the wise is that we will use the gifts that God has given us to benefit the saints and to evangelize the lost. So what has God done? What gifting is God um, bestowed upon you? And how do we use that then for the edification of God's people and for the dissemination of God's truth to an unbelieving world? This is the final words of the preacher. We are to use the gifts that God has given to us that we might bless not only the church, but, be, but minister to those yet to believe. It goes on and says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. I love this. He assessed, he studied, and he arranged many proverbs. Well, if you've been with us in the book of Ecclesiastes, you realize that he has taken a rather circuitous path to get to where he is. But let me remind you or make sure that we understand that while the preacher has taken a somewhat circuitous path to get to the place where he is now, he has not wandered aimlessly. He had a point, he had a purpose in taking this rather um, long way to get to his conclusion. He took many detours and he traveled some very remote back roads, but the preacher was not wandering aimlessly. The path he took has led us to an end of ourselves. The path that the preacher has taken us down. He's taken us down some dark alleys and into some barren canyons. He's taken us to the city's bright lights and to the most glamorous places. He's taken us to all of these places and they were all meant to bring us to an end of ourselves. He took us to all of these places and each time we went to the bright lights or to a dark alley, we realized, well, that won't satisfy. The meaning of life is not found there. All of these things are meant, all of this path was meant to bring us to the end of ourselves where the only one left is God who alone is supreme. He has stripped away every pursuit, every reason or every desire that we might think is the meaning of life. He has stripped those away. And what we have found at the end of every dark alley and behind every bright light is there stands the living God. He is the only one left and he alone is supreme. The preacher has eliminated all of the common answers to the meaning of life. And he has demonstrated that they are empty. So every hedonistic pursuit, every desire, every um, hope of fame or glory, every um, desire to 
have greater understanding of a particular idea he has brought us to the end. He has found and he has demonstrated that they are all empty. The other thing we see is that not only does he weigh and study and arrange many proverbs with great care, he has sought words of delight and uprightly he wrote the words of truth. He found compelling ways to communicate the truth. So this is what we've seen as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes. The preacher has found, uh, has not only taken us on a circuitous path to bring us to the conclusion that he is about to, to give us, but he has also um, tried to find compelling ways to communicate what he is saying to us. For instance, one could say this, life's pleasures are, will never satisfy you. Or you could say, as the preacher said, This is just chasing after the wind. We could say that fellowship is really important. That's probably the way I would put it. The preacher says a threefold cord is not easily broken. So he's found compelling ways, I think, um, of Jesus using parables and figures of speech and analogies and metaphors to communicate God's truth in compelling ways. One of my favorites, in fact, I think I even mentioned it last week, but I'll, I'll mention it again. If, I, if you were to ask me, tell me something about the kingdom of God, I'd say, well, the kingdom of God is like really great. The kingdom of God is like probably the most valuable thing ever. Jesus would say this, the kingdom of God is like a treasure in a field. And a man found it. And he went and he sold everything he had to purchase that field. The goal of the preacher, though, is not to tickle ears, but to open ears. And he uses compelling speech to open our ears to the words of God, to the words of truth. And so we begin with, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. And then he goes on, he says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, and they are given by one shepherd. I love this picture. The words of the wise sting and stabilize. They are like goads and they are like nails. The words of wisdom perform two functions. Number one, words of wisdom sting. Wisdom prods us to change course. This would have the idea of, uh, or perhaps bring up the image of a shepherd who has a pointy stick in his hand. And that pointy stick, when a sheep goes astray, he pokes the sheep. And the sheep, it is uncomfortable for the sheep, but he gets back in line. The words of wisdom are like a, like a goad that prods us to change course. A sharp stick that would keep the sheep from stay, straying. Wisdom, church, may require painful prodding. And we tend to resist But the words of wisdom might be painful, but they do keep us on the right track. They allow us to maintain a course directed towards Christ. But not only do 
The words of wisdom sometimes sting. They also stabilize. They are like nails. I don't know, the, the example that at least came to my mind was that some, some of you might like to camp. We, I like to camp. And I think, well, when I put up my tent, what do I do? I stake it down. I drive stakes into the ground. Why? So that when the wind comes up, my tent doesn't go flying all over the place. Stakes stabilize this tent in the ground. And truth, the words of wisdom, not only prod us and poke us to go in the right direction, sometimes in an uncomfortable way, they also stabilize us so that we are immovable. The words of wisdom perhaps are like the person who built his house on the rock which withstands the fiery, which withstands the storm. Jesus told the parable, those of you who hear these words of mine are like a man who built his house upon the rock and the storm came and the winds blew and the house stayed upright. The words of wisdom not only prod us and poke at us to go the right direction, but they stabilize us so that in the storm we will stand and be unmoved. And so the words of this book, the words of Ecclesiastes may sting In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes has demonstrated to us that all have sinned. Has demonstrated to us that God does not provide an answer to every question we propose. The words of Ecclesiastes inform us that we are not the center of the universe. Ouch! And the words of this book will stabilize you that God is the ruler of all and that He is good. And when the storms blow, we remember God rules over the wind and God is good. The difficulties we face are only temporal. They stabilize and they keep us. So the words of the wise are like goads and they are like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings and they are given by one shepherd. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, we read, The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. We often speak of God, or God is often referred to in Scripture as a shepherd. And here the preacher um, balances our understanding of God, because what did he say? Last week, I know you all remember so clearly everything that was said last week, so I need not ask that question because you all know the answer, that God was referred to as our creator. And here the preacher balances our understanding of God and he contrasts our creator with our shepherd. When we speak of our creator, we tend to think of God being, when we speak of God being our creator, we might think of God being transcendent, that he is distant, that he is other. And that's an accurate statement. God is distant. God is other. God is transcendent. No doubt about it. The Bible clearly states such things. We need to understand God as our creator. The preacher balances that out with God is also our shepherd. That is, God is imminent. 
God is near. He is personal. And He leads and He guides us. And He speaks to us. And He heals our, and comforts our wounds. He is our Creator. And yet, He does not remain distant. Distant. He dwells with His people. He guides His people. He directs His people. He protects and He feeds and He heals His people. He is our Creator, but He did not just create us and leave us to fend for ourselves. He is our Shepherd who guides and comforts and protects us. And He might carry a sharp stick. God is often portrayed as the shepherd of his people. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 34. We see it in Isaiah chapter 40, 11. All of these verses speak of God being a shepherd. I am your shepherd. I am your shepherd. You have many false shepherds and I will establish myself and I will come as the true shepherd and I will lead you and I will guide you. And then imagine about 2,000 years ago, a man in Galilee who is preaching about the kingdom of God and doing incredible signs says this, I am the good shepherd. The Lord's shepherd is the good shepherd. And Jesus, God had been promising or stating over and over and over again that I am a shepherd, I am your shepherd, I am your shepherd. And then comes along a man, Jesus the Christ, stands in their midst and says, I am the good shepherd. And so we have the words of the wise are like goads. They are like nails firmly fixed and they are collected sayings and they are given. God's word is given to us by one shepherd. The words of the wise, speaking of Solomon, are the words of God. The book of Ecclesiastes is the authoritative word of the living God. In fact, he goes on and he says, "Um, My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There is no end, and much steadiness is a weariness of of the flesh. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Beware of anything beyond these words, beyond the words of the shepherd. Because they are God's word, they are, by definition, sufficient. Timothy in the second, or Paul in the second letter to Timothy said this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There is some prodding in that verse and there is some stabilization, um, some stability in that verse. Beyond any words, beware of any words beyond those of the shepherd. Because these words are God's words, they are sufficient. What do we know about these words. And, and I think that the, the word, that the phrase these words is referring most likely to the book of Ecclesiastes, not the entirety of Scripture. But if we were to take these words as the words of Ecclesiastes as being sufficient, as being the very word of God, then what do we learn from these words? 
Well, here's what we would know. That trusting in things or people, trusting in things that are not God, will leave us empty. That in the garden man fell and sin spread to all. We talked about that in this book. That none of us is righteous and that sin brought death to all and that our corrupt heart needs to be transformed and that is a work that only God, the Creator, Shepherd, can do. The wise are those who are transformed and the fool continues in falling. And that these words are a call to find satisfaction in God who who gives rest to the restless heart. These are the words of God. The Gospel, if you will, the words of truth are given to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. We see the fall of man. We see the spread of sin, the universality of sin. We see the need for our Redeemer. And we see that God is that Redeemer who can change the heart. This is, these are the words of the shepherd. Many words are written, the preacher says, of, many, of the making of many books there is no end. And in much study is weariness of the flesh. There are many words written. But only God's word is sufficient. Accumulating more resources is not the answer, but obedience to what has already been revealed. We read book after book after book and thinking that perhaps this book will provide the answer. Perhaps this book will help me discover the meaning of life. Perhaps this book will reveal to me my purpose in this life. Well, I'm not opposed to reading other books. What I am saying is that this book, God's Word, is sufficient to answer all of those questions. Accumulating more resources is not the answer. In fact, most of us don't have a difficulty. Some people I hear say, well, I don't understand the Bible. It's so hard. The problem isn't what, isn't that the Bible is hard to understand. The problem is that what you understand you are unwilling to do. That's the issue. And we can write more words. But until we're willing to do what God has clearly made known to us, we will have restless souls. And so, quick summary of this first short paragraph. Let me ask you this question. Has God's word stung your conscience? Has God's word stung your conscience? Has God's word driven you to repentance? Has God's word fostered faith? God's word is God's goad for your good. It will poke you, it will prod you, and it will stabilize you. The question really isn't, I don't understand it, is will you do what you understand it to say? Well, that's the first paragraph, or actually the first couple paragraphs. And now we come really to the thesis statement, the everything that the preacher has been working up towards. This is the end. God is ultimate. This is the end of the matter. In fact, he even says so. This is the end of the matter. This is the end of the book and this is the end of the pursuit. The end of the matter. This is the finality. Evidence has been collected and a verdict has been reached 
All has been heard. Witnesses have been given a chance to give their testimony. No voice has been silenced. Power has given its voice to, um, to this to the meaning of life, sex and beauty and celebrity and wine and achievement and entertainment. They have all spoken and given a chance to testify that they are the answer to man's lack and to man's need. They have all been heard and they have all fallen short. No path has been left unexplored. Every dark corner has been investigated. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. We've heard from every voice. We've explored every path. We've looked down every corridor. We've overturned every rock. One of the great comforts of this statement, this is the end of the, or the end of the matter, all has been heard, is this. We need not search continuously for the, li- for the life's meaning or purpose. We need not search continuously for the meaning of life. People keep pursuing, well, I wonder what the meaning of life is. I wonder what my purpose in life is. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. Here it is, the end. It's all been said. Every witness has given testimony. And here we come to the end of the matter. No path has been left unexplored. And here's the end of the matter. Fear God. What? There's got to be more than that. Fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God. This is a reminder. We read in Proverbs that that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And here we learn that the end of the matter is to fear God. So the beginning and the end. The beginning of wisdom, fear God. The end of the matter, fear God. The answer is fear God. Fearing God is the beginning of wisdom and here it is the summation of all things. And we've tried to define what it means to fear God. And we did a whole sermon, a major part of a sermon, I think it was in chapter 3, on the fear of God. You can go back and, and look for that. But here's how, a couple of ways we defined it. We, we uh, listened to Walter Kaiser, a, an Old Testament scholar, and I think he he gets, he gets it well, or he states it well. The fear of God, that the fear of God is the commitment of the total being to trust and believe in the living God. He then goes on, he says, the one who fears God dreads nothing more than God's disfavor. I thought that was great. The one who fears God dreads nothing more than God's disfavor. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, The fear of God is to have God in view and acknowledge Him as the author of all things. It is to acknowledge that He is in control even when we don't see Him. That God is the author of all things. That God is in control even when we don't see Him. And that our greatest dread, our greatest concern in life is to disappoint or to do something that would bring about God's disfavor. That's the fear of God. This is the end of the journey. How countercultural. We are taught by many voices that we are the only sovereign. That our desires are ultimate and that they should be followed. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I want. And I'm just going to pursue it. 
That's not the end of the matter. You are not sovereign. The preacher has taken us down that path and we found that it is empty. And at the end of the path which said, I'm sovereign, I'm in control, I rule all things, we found that it was not only empty, that it was empty of that claim, but at the end there was the sovereign God looking back at us. The preacher has eviscerated all human autonomy. In fact, he said in chapter 12, verse 1, the most basic reason for being created is to live in a relationship with our Creator. The fear of God, then, should overrule our fear of anything else. The fear of God should overrule our fear of anything else. What do you fear? Lack of reputation? The missing out of pleasure? That you won't be accepted by your peers? that you won't achieve what you'd hope to achieve, that your dreams or your five-year or your ten-year plan may not be realized. Is that your greatest fear? The preacher says fear God. Perhaps death is your greatest fear. For those who are wise, who have read the book of Ecclesiastes, we realize that death is not ultimate. God is ultimate, and he is the only one who is ultimate. Your reputation, your fulfilling of your pleasures, your desire to be accepted, your fear of death, none of them are ultimate. God is ultimate. Fear God. We are subject to many idols, to many gods, but they are all empty and they are powerless. They are vain, vanity, vanity. All is vanity. The deity of death is fleeting and temporal. The deity of reputation, the gods of success and the gods of, of fulfilling my dreams, they are all vanity. They are all fleeting. God gives gifts to his people. One of the things we learn in the book of Ecclesiastes is that God gives gifts to his people for their enjoyment, not their worship. We see this throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Oh yes, he takes us down some really dark places. And then he balances it out with enjoy life. Enjoy your husband. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy a little wine. Enjoy entertainment. Enjoy life. Have a good meal with your friends. Enjoy it. And he's given these things as good gifts, but they are terrible gods. God gives good gifts to his people for their enjoyment, not their worship. And enjoyment is realized by their use within the boundaries provided by the good shepherd. So he has given us good gifts. Good food, good music, success, achievement, nice jobs, accolades and, and acceptance by others. All these things have been given by God. They are good gifts and they are to be enjoyed within the boundaries that the Good Shepherd has provided.
So good food. If you begin to worship food or you begin to abuse it and it becomes a crutch, it is not being used within the boundaries that the Good Shepherd has given. Might raise some eyebrows here, but the preacher says that he is giving us wine. It is a gift of God given within the boundaries that God has given. Enjoy what God has given you to use it outside the boundaries that God has given, whatever that may be. For some, it may be utter abstinence and some it may be within uh, certain parameters that use it within the boundaries that God has given. These are good gifts. God has given sex as a good gift and it is to be used within the boundaries that God has given. It is not a God. It is not to be worshipped. And so, fear God. This is the end of the matter. It's not the end of my sermon. It's the end of the matter. And we pray that the fear of God overrules our fear of anything else. So fear God and keep his commandments. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Here is the keeping of or obeying his commandments. This is the practical living out of one's fear of God. Fear God. Now, live out his commandments. Obey him. This is the whole duty of man. That is, it is the totality. It is permanent. It is complete. It is not fleeting. It is the opposite of vanity. This is the total, permanent, complete duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. It is not fleeting. It is not a mist. It is not a vapor. It is the one solid, eternal thing that you can count on. It is the one thing that has substance. It is not a mist. It is not a vapor. It is where the fleeting live finds an anchor. It is the duty of all people to fear God and keep his commandments. In other words, none of you are exempt. Nobody is exempt from this commandment. Fear God and keep his commands. It is the duty of all all people. If you are listening to me from a different country, it is your duty to fear God and keep his commandments. Nobody is exempt from this. Nobody has a side arrangement with God, a side deal. This is what life is all about. God is our creator shepherd, worthy of all worship and to follow his wise and good ways. Then he gives a reason. I think he could end there. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. I think he could just end it there and we would all say, nice. But he gives a reason. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Evil. Here's the reason. For God. For God is going to do something. God is ultimate. Your friends are not going to um, bring every deed into judgment. Your boss, your work, your achievement will not bring every deed into judgment. God, the good shepherd, the creator of all things, will bring everything into judgment. God is ultimate and we will all stand before him. This is true of all people. Not only for our 
deeds, good and evil, but also for our motives, which may not be seen. It is easy to put on a facade of righteousness, and your facade may fool the church, may fool the pastor of the church, it may fool uh, those who uh, oversee your work. A facade of righteousness may fool the church community, but it will be brought to light. We see in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, Jesus says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Paul picks up this theme and in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul writes this, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. The Lord will judge all things, even the secrets of our heart. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Church, the book ends with final judgment. Ecclesiastes ends with final judgment. So let me just say this. The book ends with final judgment, and that means everything matters. If there is no God, nothing matters. It doesn't matter how you live or what you do. There is no God. There is no judge. You're the only judge. Nothing matters. But if there is a God, and if He is the God who has been revealed in Scripture, and specifically for our text, for our purposes, the book of Ecclesiastes, then church, everything matters. Everything matters. Time matters. Did you spend your time, was it wasted on foolish pursuits, or was your time spent in honoring God? How about money? Was your money focused on the temporal pursuits or on eternal? How about your bodies? What have you viewed? What have we touched? What have we said? And what have we heard? How did you use your body for the glory and the honor of God? Everything matters. Did you honor your father and your mother? It matters. The stranger How did you treat them? It matters. Did we uphold justice and tolerate injustice? It matters. Did we give a cup of cold water in the name of the Lord? It matters. What did we say about others? What about that sarcastic uh, remark that you said underneath your breath as you were walking away? It matters. How about a word of edification? It matters. Boastful words? Did you lay down your life for your brother or your sister? It matters. How about in your household? Changing diapers, doing laundry, fixing dinner, mowing the lawn? It matters. It all matters. It is not vanity. Vanity is that it's empty, it is meaningless, it is fleeting, but the final words of the preacher is this, it all matters. 
everything you do, everything you think, everything you desire, even if it is unknown to everybody else, it matters. So I'll conclude with this. The book ends with judgment, but it points to grace. The book ends with judgment, but I believe it points to the gospel. Since there is a God, and that God is going to judge, we need to take that into consideration. Since there is a God and he will judge, you may be thinking, well then, I have not honored this God as I ought to have. I have not honored God as he ought to be honored. The Bible calls this sin or lawlessness. The Bible also says that the wages of sin is death. I have not honored God as I ought to. There is a God and he is judge over all, but I have not honored him as he ought to. I have not feared him righteously and I have not kept his commands. That is sin and the wages of sin is death. But the good news is this, that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That is, that Jesus bore your sin. You have sinned. And Jesus has borne that sin. When he was crucified, he took the penalty of sin upon himself. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. What a great verse. He himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. We have sinned and the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus bore our sin in his body. He was crucified and took the penalty of your sin on himself. Well, that's good news. So what do I do? Gospel, scriptures say repent. That is to turn away from your sin and turn towards Christ. You don't just simply turn away from your rebellion to God and then just kind of wander around. You turn away from your sin and we turn to Christ. That is, we trust that Christ's work on the cross is sufficient to forgive me of my sin and will put me in a right relationship with God Almighty, that he is both creator and shepherd. So I will turn from my sin. Jesus bore my sin. I will, I will repent I will turn away from that and turn to him trusting that his work at Calvary was sufficient to pay the penalty that I owed because of my sin. That his death on the cross bore that penalty. I believe that. I trust that. I rest in that. Then what? What do I do then? (laughs) It gets better. God will not only declare you innocent of your lawlessness, he will adopt you into his family, making you his son or his daughter. He doesn't just forgive you and say, okay, you're not guilty anymore, have a nice day. He says, you're not guilty, now come home. I've got a place prepared for you at my house. I want you to live there and I want you to be my heir. I want you to be the recipient of my inheritance. 
He will adopt you into his family. He will make you his son or his daughter. He will instruct and he will teach you how to live a life that is pleasing to him. So he will not only save you, he will then teach you how to live a life that is acceptable to him. He will do that through a variety of means. Perhaps one of the most significant is that he will give you his Holy Spirit. But he will also place you in a community of forgiven people to help. That's called the church. So I've sinned. I've bro- I've, I'm lawless. Christ has paid the penalty of that sin. Well then, I believe that. I find that sufficient. Great. Now, repent and turn to Christ and he will make you a son or a daughter and then he will bring you and place you into his family, into a community of other forgiven people. We call that the church. You are not alone. You are also not a free agent. He has given his word to guide and his church to keep us going in the right direction. 